Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Well, hello, friends and family. It's good to be back on the podcast. I'm afraid I got a few days behind. So this weekend, I'm going to try to catch up uh, to get the podcast caught up with their class schedule. Today, we're going to look at the central theological tenet of Christian teaching, which is salvation. Specifically, we're going to look at the verses in the book of Romans, commonly called the Romans Road to Salvation. I'm giving you this little warning for the podcast viewers because this, of all of the lectures in this New Testament series, this is going to be the one that feels most like church. But I still believe it is really important, even though it is a secular class, for us to understand clearly what Christians believe and what I think Paul was actually trying to teach us. So that is the purpose of this class. Also, on a few occasions, you'll hear me referring to game day. Uh, We were all in in a hurry to try to get out of this class in order to get home and watch Thursday night football because Kansas City played a really close game and pulled out the victory against the L.A. Chargers. So if that's what you're hearing us refer to, we we were all Chiefs fans in the class and we were eager to go watch them get their eventual victory. So without further ado, this is the lecture on, this is Romans Part 2 in the New Testament series, and this is about the Romans' road to salvation. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Collar Scholar. All right. Good morning, or uh, let me start again. Hello. Hello. Good (laughs) evening, good afternoon, and uh, happy game day to you. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to uh, go through the, quote-unquote, the Romans' road to salvation. First of all, just a bit of a history lesson why it's called that. The Roman Empire was powerful and lasted a very long time and some of the reasons why is because the Roman Empire did not necessarily go in and force everybody to be Roman and to stop speaking their languages and worshipping their gods and and that kind of thing. The Romans would only end up doing that like in the year 8070 with the Jews when the Jews rebelled. But up to that point the, the temple was there. In fact the temple got bigger and grander under the Romans, under Herod. The other reason the Roman was uh, Roman, the Roman Empire was so powerful was because they were uh, an extraordinary military power. In many ways, you wouldn't see a military power that great again until the British Empire. But one of the th- uh, overlooked reasons why the Roman Empire was so great was that they built such great roads. 
I mean, there's if you were to look at a map of some of the major roads that the Romans built and, and, and maintained and kept up with, and then chart on top of that Paul's missionary journeys, you'll see a lot of overlap. The Roman roads connected a lot of cities, and that increased trade and economic prosperity, and it ended up creating a lot of loyal Romans in places you wouldn't expect, like in Israel or in Greece, and places that, that might have otherwise have felt like they were being oppressed by Rome. Because Rome was, it was a fairly imp- oppressive. I, I just said that they weren't, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't go in and just force you to do everything. That was what the Assyrians did. The Assyrians came in and they were just the bullies. I mean, and they lasted a long time too. But the, the Romans uh, did something different. But they were still oppressive. So some of these places might have been wanting to rebel, but it's just that economic prosperity. And a lot of that was because of the Roman road system that they, they made. And that created the idiom that all roads lead to Rome. Now, not every road leads to Rome, just like not every road leads to Kansas City. But a bunch of roads lead to Kansas City. And if you're on any road in America, if you're willing to drive a long distance and make a bunch of turns onto other roads, well, yeah, you can get to Kansas City. There's nowhere in this country where you say, well, you can't get there from here. And Rome was very much the same way. So from that phrase, all roads lead to Rome, came the idiom uh, used by Christians, usually evangelical Christians, the Roman's road of salvation. The idea is that, remember what we said last week, that since Paul had never met the Romans, he laid out more of his undergirding theology in the book of Romans than he did in the other books. In most of the other books, he's addressing specific issues that are arisen in that church. But in Romans, he's giving a more broad outline of his theology. And because of that, we can actually create the theology of salvation. And remember, this is a secular uh, class, so I'm, I'm, I'm speaking... I am a Christian, but I'm speaking as, as a professor that's looking at Christian theology as an academic discipline, and you can lay out all the important points of, of theology for salvation from Romans. Not that there isn't great salvation verses outside of Romans, there are, but Romans is such a rich theological book that you can actually build the entire Christian theology of salvation from Romans. So, Without further ado, let's dig in. We will read these verses and uh, discuss them. If you have questions or comments, just jump right in. That's where we're at. All right, so the first thing that we need to understand is that the Christian message is built on the idea that there's a problem in the world. And depending on how how deep you want to go, you can say that the problem is chaos, that's uh, a lot of you. You see that a lot in the Old Testament. A lot of times, when the concept of seas or, or or the roiling seas, the storms on the seas, like in the Book of Jonah, a lot of that is an allusion to chaos and ancient mythology. And in fact, the the Old Testament mentions Leviathan, the great uh, sea monster. The Old Testament's not necessarily saying Leviathan was an actual thing, but it could possibly be referring to the Leviathan sea monster, which finds itself in lots of ancient mythology. Um, I actually don't know this for sure, but like in Greek mythology, you have the Kraken. So the Kraken would either be similar to, or, or maybe even a, a, 
an analog to uh, the Leviathan. You see the word Leviathan a lot in the Old Testament. So chaos is the problem. Uh, the other uh, big problem would be uh, Satan or the devil or uh, many other uh, descriptions of a spiritual being whose goal is to oppose God and to oppose the people who serve God. But in Romans, the main problem laid out is sin. And that's more of a personal problem. Chaos and Satan, that's something outside of ourselves. But sin is something that is inside us. So now it's a problem that, I mean, most of us, I'm sure, know the ultimate solution is actually Jesus dying as our sacrifice. But let's pretend like we don't know that yet. So sin is is something within us, so it's something we have to fight ourselves. So we're actually our own worst enemy in a way. So Romans lays out that we are sinful and we need salvation. So the first verse come, or both of these verses come from Romans chapter 3. In verses 10 through 12, Paul writes this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So Paul is quoting, I'm looking it up right now, Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. And also that phrase is repeated in Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. So, like I said, you can find these concepts outside of Romans. It's not like Paul is making this stuff up for this book. Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, and also identically Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. Psalm, 19, Psalm 14 and 53 are not identical psalms, but they're very similar. And certain verses are identical in between the two. So that's what Paul is quoting there. And then a, a few paragraphs down in chapter 3, he reiterates the point in one of his shorter verse, verses, Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we see here that from both of these verses, we see a view of sin that sin is our own... Evil might be too strong of a word in modern English, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. It's, it's our own evil we do. Our selfishness, uh, sexual sins, jealousy, uh, maybe even violence. Uh, all kinds of, there's all kinds of categories of sin. And we all know ourselves well. The way I like to explain it is, imagine if we invented a technology that was able to record your thoughts. And at the beginning of next Sunday's church service, we're going to take that technology and plug it into the projector, and we're going to scroll through your thoughts real quick. And, ooh, that one looks interesting. Ooh, that one looks interesting. That would, Yeah, that would scare the living daylights out of me. I, and, and that, if, if, if the idea that other people might be able to scroll through your thoughts like they scroll through a, a, pictures on a phone... If that bothers you, then that gives you an idea of how of what God sees in us. Now I also want to get I also want to point out that the Bible also says that we are loved and that we are uh, Jesus died to save us, we are worthy. Uh, I, the, the message of salvation doesn't necessarily have to have us at a point where we think that we are worthless, we're not. but we are broken. we are sinful. And then, 
the second verse I brought up here shows another side of sin, and that is that there is a standard. So think of like a, like a baseball season, and you're, you're a really good hitter. Well, if you're a really good hitter in the major leagues, you're probably going to be hitting like 330, which is 33% of the times you go up to bat, you get a hit. So there's lots of room for improvement. Uh, players that hit 400 or 40%, I mean, there's like just a handful in the last 80 or 90 years of people who've done that. But at 40%, you've got 60% room for improvement. The, perf- the, the goal would be perfection, that every time you go up to bat, you get a hit. It's never going to happen, but that's still the goal. And so when we look at our sin, the goal is to never sin. The goal is God and His glory and His perfection. And we just fall short of that. We just do. Any questions on sin? Now remember, I am going to slip into preacher mode. I can't help it. I am an evangelical Christian. Uh, This is the kind of stuff I believe. But we are approaching this as a secular class. So all questions are on the table. Anything you might fear of saying in church, like somebody will say, oh, you're a dirty heathen. We're not going to do that here. So questions, comments, disagreements are welcome. So the first point being established that we are sinful and we need to be saved from that sin. The next thing we need to look at is that Romans teaches us that there is a cost to that sin, and that cost is death. The key verse, and we're only going to read half of it now because the second half of the verse is a lot more hopeful. But in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the first half of the verse says, For the wages of sin is death. So you think of a wage like I work, I run a forklift at Old Dominion. And every Thursday, I believe, the money they put in my bank account every week is a direct result of the time that I give them running forklift loading freight. I mean, I suppose I could quit the job, but even if I quit the job, they would still have to legally pay me for the work I've already done. And so you can, you, you can try to refuse the wage. You could try to send for free, as it will, like you could offer to work for free, but it just doesn't work that way. The sin that you've done, even if you successfully stop sinning, you're still going to get paid, and the wages is death. Paul elaborates further in the next chapter, in Romans 7.13. Paul says this, Did that which is good then bring death in me? Well, by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So that verse is taken a little out of context. Let me explain what he's saying here. He's making an overall point at this point in the chapter that the law is good. That God gave us the law, the law shows us what a righteous standard before God looks like. So the law itself is good. It's like that the proverbial baseball player who hit, gets a hit every single time he comes up to play. But this proverbial player doesn't actually exist. I mean, the, the, the best uh, batting average of all time. There might have been some player back in like the 1870s that hit like 600 or something back when the game was still developing. But I think the best average ever is something around 440. And even that was like 110 years ago. So less than 50%. But the proverbial player that gets a hit every time is uh, hits 1,000. He hits 100% of the time. 
So that 100%, that's a good thing. But the standard kind of stares you in the face, and every time you don't get a hit, it reminds you that you didn't get a hit, because now you can't hit a 1,000. You can't get that perfection. So the law is good, but what the law does doesn't necessarily feel good. It shows us the standard that we fail. So Paul says, understanding that's what he's talking about, let's reread it. Did the the really good law then, did it bring death to me? Well, no. No, it wasn't the really good law. It was sin. The law just acted as a mirror. The standard that God gave us, he, he gave us all the standards we should live by. That standard just shows me how much of a jerk I am. So it is, it's is—it's not the law, it's the sin. That's what's producing death in me. And then, jumping back a few chapters, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, in this case he's talking about Adam, from Genesis chapter 2 and 3, uh, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So, you're probably familiar with the concept of original sin. That is the theology that we are all still getting punished. We're all being punished for Adam and Eve's sin. I don't necessarily disagree with original sin, but I've never actually found it to be overly necessary of a teaching, as a, as a pastor, as a preacher. Because, as Paul says here, all you need is those last three words there. Because all sinned. So, you don't actually need the, the teaching or the theology that I'm still being punished for Adam's sin. Because I'm being punished for my sin. I'm sinful. I'm a jerk. I'm the one. So, it's, it's almost like I've already, I'm already serving seven life sentences for murder. And then I accidentally also get convicted for somebody else's murder. What are they going to do? Make me spend eight life sentences in prison? I mean, it doesn't really change anything. The, the effect is going to be the same on me. So whether I'm being held, held guilty for Adam's sin or not is really irrelevant. Because all sinned. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. So now, looking back at the Romans road, we start with sin. And that produ- that's the reason we need salvation. But because of the sin, and, and we all sin, because of the sin, we face death. Now, you could look at death here as physical death, or spiritual death, or probably both. Now, that being said, when we're saved, we still are going to die. I mean, we have all known plenty of saved people who have died. So if, you're, if you want to talk about physical death, then, then you've got to mix in with Genesis and and you got to think death on a grand scale, that, that the existence of death itself is because of sin. It's not that in, fingers crossed, in 60 or 70 years when I die, like I said, fingers crossed, that it'll be, exactly right, I'll be 101, 100 and somewhere. <laughs> so in 40 or 50 years when I die, the, it, it, uh, it won't be because the moment I die I had a bad thought. I'll die because our entire species has sinned for a long time, and sin and death is just now part of the experiment or experience of being a human. But the spiritual death is more of an individual thing, and we all we, we none we don't have to experience that spiritual death. And here in a few minutes, we will see that Christ provides a way out of it. But first, we need to establish this. So you you're traveling along the road. 
you realize that sin is a problem and that death is a problem, and you say, well, I'm just going to pull up my bootstraps and work harder and grit and sweat and do what I need to do and save myself. Well, Paul uh, put the kibosh on that one. So the short verse for understanding this is Romans 3. We go back to Romans 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, so in other words, by doing what the law says, by doing good stuff, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So once again, remember that uh, a few verses back that we looked at. The law is good, but the law functions as a mirror. So, even if I were to hit a home run every time I go to the base or up to bat from now on, uh, I still struck out that one time. So that perfection is never going to happen again. So even if I miraculously hit like a 995, 99% of the time, I'm, I'm never getting that 1,000 again. Because the good things that I do and uh, fulfilling the law just reminds me that the law exists and that the law is a mirror reminding me of that one time, and we all know it's more than one time, that one time I sinned. So no matter how hard you work, no matter how high you pull up them bootstraps, you still need something from the outside. Roman, now here's a longer verse. verse, And, and I, I really, uh, as I was reading, I was like, a lot of this is really good, so I expanded it out. So let's read this longer passage from Romans 7, verses 14 through 25. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but... I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. So now, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil... I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members or in your body parts, your hands and your feet and your eyes and your ears. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So that's complicated. Let's go through it real quick. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. So Paul's setting up a dichotomy. And Paul comes dangerously close here to Platonic or Plato's attitudes towards the good spirit realm and the bad fleshly realm. We know that Paul's doesn't actually believe pure Platonic thought, but everybody after Plato is influenced by Plato. We can't help it. Even those of us who have very little understanding of Plato, we're more influenced by Plato than we can possibly imagine. 
So Paul, influenced by Plato, but not completely embracing the idea, is, is saying that the, the law, once again, he's saying the law is good, it is good, but I'm still made of carbon and flesh. I'm, I'm still for, for, with sin. And he says, For I do not understand my actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So he, through, he's basically describing conscience. That the part of me that, that, that is, is able to step back and, and, and have a better perspective, I know that there's, I shouldn't be doing this, that I shouldn't be looking at this thing on the internet, that I shouldn't be fudging on my taxes, that I shouldn't be driving 85 on the highway, all, all kinds of things. I know I shouldn't be doing this, but you know what? I do it anyway. And it's frustrating to Paul. Now, if I do what I do not want, then I agree with the law that it is good. So basically he's saying, so I recognize that what I'm doing is bad, so the mirror, remember the law for Paul is a mirror. The law is good. I'm recognizing it because it's staring back at me and it's, it, it looks ugly. I'm looking ugly and, and as I see myself in this law, it doesn't look good. So the law itself is good. It's just like a mirror. No matter how ugly you are, if you look in a mirror and it shows you an ugly person, it's not the mirror's fault. It's the ugly person. Not that any of you are ugly. Now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Now he, he And he hits this note again later. This can be one of those verses that can be easily taken out of context. Because it sounds like he's saying, I'm off the hook. I'm not doing this sin. It's sin itself. As if sin was like a little elf that's, that's deserving all the blame. All I, all I can say to that is that's not what he's saying. That's one of the reasons why I put this, these verses in their greater context. Because I want us to see the overall argument Paul's making in chapter 7. He is not letting us off the hook. He's, what he's really trying to do is he's really trying to hit home that, that sin is really... It's not something we can control ourselves. You can't just pull your bootstraps up a little higher and work a little harder and grit your teeth and sweat a little more and, and work past sin. Because no matter how hard you work... And the good work is good. If you feed a homeless person, that's good. If you visit somebody a shut-in, that's good. These are good things. The good that you do doesn't make the good things bad. But the good that you do doesn't then erase all of the sin. Do you understand? So Paul's trying to, basically he's trying to build up sin in his argument. As an enemy, you you need help defeating. Uh, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. Once again, he's getting dangerously close to Plato's thought here that the flesh is inherently bad and the spirit realm is inherently good. Uh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So once again, it's the baseball metaphor. I want to get a hit every time I come to the plate, but I'm not going to get a hit every time I come to the plate. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. That's pretty self-explanatory. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Once again, this is a verse that can be taken out of context, saying, and it's not me, it's sin. It's the that little elf creature over there, the sin. That's who deserves all the blame. Once again, I can just say that that's not what Paul is saying. He's just trying to say sin, which is part of you. It's not an ugly elf creature outside of you. It's part of you. That that sin is an evil, ugly enemy that you need help defeating. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, 
in my inner being. But I see in my members, in my body parts, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he keeps using the word law here. He's just he's doing a play on words. For those of us who are not steeped in Jewish law up to our gills, let's just back up and, and just remove the words law there and just say and say this that the good that I the, so the law the the law of God or the, or the the law of good works the good that I do and the evil that I do are at war with each other, but. The, the sin still lies in, in my hands and in my feet and in my ears and in my eyes and in my brain. It's still there. It's something that I need help defeating. And he says, Wretched man who that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he answers it. Thanks be to God through Jesus our Lord. So, Paul's jumping the gun on our Romans road. He's, he's showing you the, the backside of this page. The good news. So, now on the backside of the page. The fourth stage, or the fourth station on this Romans road. We've, we've already established that sin's a problem, that sin leads to death, and we cannot work our way out of the problem. So, can somebody else, can an outside advocate do it for us? Well, Romans tells us that Jesus provides salvation. Remember I told you earlier that I only gave you half of that uh, Romans 6.23. Well, let's read all of Romans 6.23, and we're going to go a verse ahead just to get a little more context. So Romans 6. 22 through 23. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, I got to stop here. The word slave is just a loaded term in American history. I a lot of times I wish that modern translations would just use bond servant or servant or something. Paul's implying here the the lifetime commitment of slavery that it's that we have been saved by grace through Jesus Christ, and so we belong to the family of God now. We, it, it's an unbreakable bond. What Paul's not saying is that we used to be slaves under, uh, under the law and under death, and then our old masters took us to the marketplace, and another equally bad master bought us, and that's the God. And then now that equally bad master is making us harvest tobacco all over again. You know, No. In Paul's analogy, it's... It's more of a redemption. It's it's almost it's it's if we were to keep our American slavery analogy, I used to be under a really bad evil master, and then another master came to the slave market and he purchased me, but then he immediately struck the chains off my arms and said, "You are free. I'm free. Sin and death are are no longer attached to my arms and my legs, and I don't have to harvest tobacco and 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 cotton and sugar cane." But you know what? Since I love this new master, I will serve him and I'll do whatever he needs me to do. So that's the mental image Paul's trying to convey. And our history of slavery on this continent is just so ugly that sometimes that word can harm our ability to understand what is, is being said when the word slavery is used. So all that being said, let's start again. Romans six twenty-two through 23 but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, through Christ, 
all of the front page, all of the bad news, that sin is a problem, that sin leads to death, and we can't fix it ourselves, all of that is no longer a problem. The the shackles have been struck from our arms and our legs, and we are set free. We have gained eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Okay, once again, that's a long passage, so let's go through it again and we'll break it down. Uh, Romans 5, 6-11. For while we were still weak, so remember the on the front page, point number three, you cannot earn our salvation. We are, we are a weakling at a bodybuilding contest. We're not going to win this contest without some help. So while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So, Christ died, but not for people who deserve it. In fact, that concept doesn't actually exist in Christian theology. There's no such thing as deserving salvation. It's like there's no such thing as deserving forgiveness. Like, say, Dorothy, will you forgive me? But for what? That's just the thing. If I haven't done anything... Then the forgiveness, my first of all, my asking for forgiveness is, is hollow. And your forgiving me, while sweet, is still hollow. Now, what if I dinged your car on, on accident when I was getting out of my, on the way into class and I dinged your car, and then I say, please forgive me. You know, I don't have insurance, I don't have money to pay for it. Will you please forgive me? And then you said, don't worry about it. It's good. We're fine. We're fine. Well, if that's the case, then, then the forgiveness is no longer hollow. There's some real weight behind it. Because you're going to have to take on a burden that I really should take. I really should fix your car, you know, with, with the ding. I should contact the auto body people and have them fix it up. But if you forgive me of that, that frees me of that debt. And then you take on the burden yourself. Although in my case, I just leave the ding. I don't care. My, I've got an old car, and every time I turn it on, it smokes. So every time I leave work... Uh, there's a, people turn around they think I'm about to explode I'm like no it's just a crappy car so then Paul continues for one will scarcely die for a righteous person though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die so Paul here is just being lo- logical it's like if so let, let's let's continue the analogy so let's say we, we were in a some kind of weird totalitarian government where dinged cars mean you have to die. Like, I don't know, our, our dictator loves beautiful cars and any ugly cars, he's going to kill somebody. So, in that case, you, uh, if I, I'm asking you to forgive me, 
then you're you're willing to take that punishment yourself. Our evil car-loving dictator is going to kill you instead of me. That's what's going to happen. So I might not be so willing to forgive you. Exactly. Your willingness drops a lot. And even if you do go ahead and accept it, maybe you're like, Will's a really good guy, you know, he's younger than me, whatever your reasoning is. You, you might talk yourself into doing it for reasons, you know, the goodness of the person or, or something else. Maybe if I, I don't have kids yet, but if I always oh, got a bunch of kids and they're cute and they, they should have their dad, you can come up with reasons to die for a good person. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So that's one of those verses a lot of people have memorized. But I, it always bothers me. I'm like, you really ought to memorize 7 and 8 together. Because verse 7 strengthens verse 8. Because Paul's saying, somebody might die for a really good person. Think of like the secret uh, service. Secret service are trained to be willing. They're not trained to sacrifice themselves. That's dumb. But they're trained to be willing to put themselves in harm's way to save the president. Not because the president is a more worthy human being, but because the president is more important to the running of this country than a Secret Service agent is. And so the Secret Service agent is willing, in a logical exchange, to place himself in the front of a bullet instead of the president. So he's willing to make that sacrifice for reasons, good reasons. Verse 8, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So there's no reasons. We haven't earned salvation. God's not like sitting up in heaven in the year 33 AD saying, wow, these, are, these humans are really good. I, I, think, I think we need to die for them. That's not happening. We were still sinners. We did not deserve to be saved, and yet we were saved anyway. That We were sinners, and Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, by his death, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we are saved from sin and death, but we are also, and this is some, some churches don't like to talk about this, but we are saved by God's wrath. We're saved from God's wrath, excuse me. That God is a loving God, and he's merciful, and, he, and, and he's, I mean, we just got done saying he died for us, or he sent his son to die for us, and Jesus Christ, Christian theology teaches us, is God. So yeah, God died for us, but God is also perfect in morality and ethics, and he's also wrathful against the evil, that, that, that little elf, that little ugly elf. God hates that little ugly elf of sin. He hates it, and he, he has wrath against that sin. So we, when, when we are saved by the blood of Christ, the, the wrath that is against our sin, that wrath is gone. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. What an interesting verse. Paul's basically saying that we are saved by His death, yes, but also by His life. And in this case, I think since he mentioned death and then life, I think he's talking about the resurrection. That we serve... We now serve a living Savior. He died on the cross, but He showed His power even over death. Uh, Paul says elsewhere in... Well, actually, Paul's quoting another uh, Old Testament passage, but he, he brings up this thought in 1 Corinthians. He says, O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? Because through Christ, 
and through Christ's resurrection. So by his death, we are freed from sin and we are no longer liable to be punished. And through his resurrection, death itself no longer has any power over us. Point number five, the sinner must respond to Jesus' offer of salvation. Romans 10, 6-13. So in the interest of time, I will break it down as we read. So you might keep a finger when we get to a point where I decide to stop and, and mention stuff. Romans 10, 6-13. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Now, I, all those verses I really put in there, I, I really should elaborate on that. If I was given a sermon, the whole sermon would be on just what we read. But I'm giving you the whole sentence so that this verse doesn't start right in the middle. Verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth, so confess is an active verb, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And our final point. Our final point I've titled, Peace with God. Or in other words, what salvation accomplishes. So Christ died for us, and we respond to his salvation, or the Christian has responded to the salvation. What is the result? Peace with God. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And finally, Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So all that first page about how bad sin is and the wages of sin is death, verse 1 of of Romans 8, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want to reiterate, especially for the podcast, this is a secular class, and uh, this this class felt more Bible study-y than any of them we're going to have from now on. But I thought it was important, since we're doing a, a class on the New Testament, to really lay out the central theological argument of the New Testament. And I believe Paul has done that in the book of Romans. And so we've just whittled away Romans to its core theological tenets. The rest of the verses we didn't read, still important. But the skeleton of the book can be broken down to these verses and these points. And so, as a secular class, it is important for us to understand what Christians believe. And it just so happens that we're all Christian. So it's what we believe. But it is important for this class to understand what Christians believe.
We hope you have enjoyed this production of The Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrights at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.